Hello, ladies, gents, and non-binary folk. You are listening to the Political This That podcast. I am your host, Anime, and join me every week as I sit down with a new guest and we talk all things politics and social justice. Hello, everyone, and happy Black History Month. For our third episode of our Black History Month series, we are joined by Zuma Azaguara. They are MLA for Union Station in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and joins us to talk about their journey into politics, the importance of representation for all, especially Black, queer people in the legislature, and what they hope people can learn during Black History Month. I hope you enjoy this episode, and let's get right into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Political This That podcast. It is Black History Month, and we are continuing uh, the episodes regarding Black History Month. And for this week's episode, I am joined by MLA for Union Station, Azuma. Hello, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing just fine. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. So before I get into the questions, I usually let the guests do their own bios to tell the people your name, pronouns. I usually say program, but you're an MLA. Um, what you're doing, <laughs> hobbies, that kind of thing. Let the people know who you are. Okay. Uh, my name is Uzoma Asaguera. I'm the NDP MLA for the constituency of Union Station, which is uh, kind of the core downtown area of Winnipeg. I'm also the official opposition critic for health and seniors in long-term care. Uh, I'm a psychiatric nurse. I'm an addiction specialist. I'm a community organizer and activist. I'm a sibling, um, you know, somebody's child, Doris's child, and uh, passionate about politics and advancing equity. Yes, love it. So before we get into the next grits questions, we're going to go to something that you're very known for, which is question period. But question, this question period is not as harsh as it is in the legislature. <laughs> not as harsh. Um, <laughs> well, just a couple of four questions that I asked just before we get into the next grits of this week's episode. So the first question I have is, what is your favorite song at the moment? Great question. My favorite song at the moment? Um, what have I been listening to? You know what? I've been listening to um, basically the same songs on repeat while I ski. And so... So you're a skier. If, That's cool. I mean, I, I can't call myself a skier. I'm so bad at it. <laughs> but, but I do cross-country ski uh, to work out and to try and, you know, not have such a, a, a negative relationship with winter. I try to shift mm. that relationship into something positive. So one song I've been listening to constantly while I ski... Which one do I want to? It's a song actually that um, was a part of the movie Beale Street. Actually, you know what? I'm going to give you a different song. Okay, okay. Uh, I'm going to give you a different song because that one's a little too, I think, depressing, uh, <laughs> to be honest. So, probably Addicted is the song that I would say is one of my most favorite songs right now. And that's by an artist called, uh, I think it's Niniola. Niniola. Why do I think yeah. I know that song? Maybe it's either I would say either that song or um, a song by uh, Destruction Boys. Okay. Yeah. What would you say your favorite genre of music would be then? Ooh, good question. My favorite genre of music is probably hip hop. It's probably hip hop and rap. Okay. But I'm also I, I love indie music. I love uh, <laughs> I love I love scores. I love music that you hear in movies mm. and, and that might sound kind of odd but I absolutely love listening to 
different soundtracks from films that I enjoy. Like the movie Interstellar is a good example. I love mm -hmm. listening to um, the themes and the and the scores from you know those sort of like really big movies. So that's not something I thought I would share here today. But <laughs> yeah. No, I'm happy. That's so cool. Okay. And the next question is: since you are an MLA for Union Station, which is in Winnipeg, what is your favorite food place in Winnipeg? Ooh, that's I can't I cannot name just one. I am a, a foodie and I absolutely I love I love love local dining. A couple of my favorites, there's Sergeant Taco on Sergeant Street in the West End. Probably some of the best tacos in the city, owned by Carlos. He's a wonderful guy. A great family-owned business. Uh, Famina's on Gary Street is another family-owned business. Fantastic roti you can get there. Tropicus is also a great spot in the West End, um, Caribbean place. Very good roti there, very good food there as well. Where else? Where else? Uh, Atiga's restaurant makes Nigerian food. Ooh. Yeah, that's on, I think it's on William, corner of William, and it's right by Red River College, the downtown, like the Notre Dame campus there. There's a, uh, you know what I, I think, I think of sometimes my favorite food as like what I'm in the mood for, favorite mm -hmm. restaurant, right? So if I want a really great coffee, I'm going to go to Diaspora Coffee on Marion, or maybe I'll go to Fet Coffee because maybe I'm, I'm also wanting like a good vegan cookie, or maybe I want some ice cream. So I'll go to Fet Coffee and ice cream in my constituency on Assiniboine. So there's lots of spots. I should just send you over a list sometime. I'm literally writing down all of these as we speak. So when I when I do come to Winnipeg, because I'd like to visit one Wonderful. day, I would love to see all of these places and see them. I'm like, oh yeah, let's well, do mention that. I will definitely, if you come to visit Winnipeg, when you visit Winnipeg, I'd love to be able to show you all of the wonderful restaurants that we have in Union Station. We've got amazing, just such a great selection of food, beverage, and uh, just great space to, to hang out and have a good meal. Okay, now I'm excited. Not, now I have to visit Winnipeg. Now I have to. Absolutely. Um, next question is, what has been your most favorable, memorable moment in politics so far? Probably one of my most memorable moments would be the passing of the, the Somali Heritage uh, Bill. So that's the first time um, a piece of legislation, a bill had been passed by any Black person in Manitoba mm -hmm. history. And it was, it really was unexpected. There were negotiations going on between our house leaders mm -hmm. and there was an opportunity to have one of our bills passed. And this was one of the bills that uh, was able to. And so this was a bill idea that was brought forward by community. It was brought forward by um, Somali community members who had witnessed a bill like this pass um, in Ontario by an MPP um, Hassan out there. And mm -hmm. so they brought this forward and said, would you, would you consider, you know, bringing a bill like this forward in Manitoba? And so worked with different folks in community to put the bill together. And, you know, very quickly, when we realized this bill had an opportunity to pass, had to make a ton of phone calls. And mm -hmm. um, because we hadn't actually gone through all the steps we had wanted to in terms of engaging folks, but we had talked to a number of people and they were excited for the opportunity for it to pass. And it did. So, you know, that's probably my, my most fond, one of my fondest memories, because it really reflects the importance of community members knowing and understanding their right and the importance mm -hmm. of 
bringing their ideas forward to legislators and how you know what they want to see happen can be achieved if they do so and um yeah i'm just thrilled for those folks who had the idea that they they now have a bill as law in manitoba and then every single year they get to celebrate um you know their week and also it's amazing that it was brought forth by the first black mla in manitoba so that's also historic in itself yeah mm -hmm. Yeah. And then the last question of question period is it this or that question. So I have been following you for a while and you are, you and your hair, beautiful. So I have to ask, if I'm not mistaken right now, you have a fro. So my this or that question is, would you rather for the rest of your life stick with your fro or go back to your roots with your twist? Because I do like your twist. I like your braided twist back. But which one would you have to prefer for the rest of your life? Oh my gosh, that's a big question. I love them both so much. For the rest of my life, I would probably go with the fro. Okay. I would probably go with the fro. I, I love um I love having it out and big and you know, kind of like twisted up and not perfect. Mm -hmm. And you know, I I I like the look of it, I like the style of it, but it's also a very intentional decision mm -hmm. to bring this natural hair and to bring uh, a style of wearing my hair into spaces where they've never been, where people, right, try to, I mean, we literally live in a time still where people um, try to manage by way of rules, et cetera, Black people's hair mm -hmm. and try to tell Black people what is acceptable, professional, uh, weaponized, you know, respectability, politics, yes. all of that. And so I, I very intentionally want to disrupt that and to um, take up space with all of my blackness, not just parts of it and have people recognize people of all communities recognize that black people can and should be taken seriously, uh, as you know, experts in what we do and what we bring to the table. However, it is that we choose to show up and, and present ourselves in that space. And we don't have to capitulate to, or bend to uh, whiteness or the, um, the the standards of of appearance that you know is eurocentric and oppressive in order to be valued in any space that we enter already dropping heat snap snap, snap. <laughs> everything you just said and we haven't even gotten too deep into the episode yet but everything you said is so true i remember um celia cesar chavan she was mp for whitby and then in the yeah. house of commons she rose up about i think this was like about 24 no, this was about 2016, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And she rose mm -hmm. up in the House of Commons and said essentially what you're talking about. And as a Black woman standing up in the House of Commons, a place that, that our voices have been silenced for so many years, for centuries, with our hair and our in our bodies, and be like, this is this is who we are. And you're not going to suppress it. And I'm not going to feed into what you have, what you think is professional. Absolutely. And I really appreciate that you've raised that and, and specifically highlighted Selena. She is an amazing, outspoken queen, queen, right? She, she's somebody who broke ground for that dialogue and for being unapologetically yourself in those spaces. And I remember that. I remember that statement that she made. I remember how she talked about rocking her natural hair or her yep. look the way she wanted to. And, you know, in doing so, she gave permission to people like myself to know that, and I had no idea at that point that politics was gonna be a thing, mm -hmm. right? But she gave permission to people to take those steps in their own 
uh, power. And so I appreciate greatly that you've you've um, given us that reminder that you know she did that heavy lifting. Yes. If you're listening, Celia, we love you. Yes, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yes, yes. But that ends question period. It's, it's shorter than what you're used to. You're used to an hour, but it's only a couple <laughs> of minutes this time. So we're going into the next bit, next bit, which is politics. Um, so my first question regarding this: How did you get involved into politics, and how did you know? Okay, I'm going to run to be MLA. How did that mm -hmm. process go for you? Well, it was an interesting process because I never ever throughout my life saw myself going into politics. I never even for a moment considered it as an opportunity that I would want to pursue mm -hmm. or that I quite frankly thought I could pursue. I never, I mean, as you know, we have had little to no representation of black people involved in politics in Manitoba historically. And, you know, I was somebody who was working really hard in healthcare um, to advance equity, to challenge racism, to challenge systemic discrimination. I was working really hard in our communities to create safer spaces for two spirit and uh, LGBTQ2 plus uh, Black, Indigenous, and people of color, mm -hmm. and doing a lot of work around that. Um, just doing a lot of advocacy work, which eventually led me to doing policy work and doing policy work and trying to support the government of the day, make better decisions for communities. And that was under the NDP government. Eventually, you know, a couple of people approached me and asked if. I had considered running politically or if I would consider running. And this was back in probably 2016. Mm -hmm. And I, I said, no, right? Like, no, I've never thought about it. I didn't really have an interest, but I, I was surprised, flattered maybe that they, that they thought I could do something like that. I was interested in learning more about what that would look like, but it wasn't the right time and then, you know, 2016 was a big year in Very Canada big year. Right? and the United States. We saw a conservative wave. We saw uh, a terrible human being elected uh, the president of the United States. And the influence and the impacts of that were felt markedly here in Canada, here in Manitoba. And, you know, the conservative government here in Manitoba immediately got to work to making some pretty harmful decisions and decisions that disproportionately affect the communities that I'm a part of, the work that I do, uh, the people that I care about. And by the time 2019 was rolling around, I made the decision to get into politics in the hopes that the work that I was doing alongside some pretty incredible people could be continued in the legislature. And so that decision was not an individual decision. It was a decision made with my family. It was a decision made with uh, community members, people that I respect, that have mentored me. And it was a decision made in hope, you know, in the hope that we can affect some positive change um, in government. So true and so important. And then as you have gone into politics and you're, you're elected, congratulations, even though that was a couple of years ago, but congratulations. How has your opinion of politics changed since entering? from before? It's definitely something you can't, you, as much as you understand, and I understood, um, you know, how politics functions, it's not something that you can fully appreciate in terms of what the role is, the toll it can take on people until you're in it. And, you know, being in the legislature as somebody who, nobody in that building prior to 2019, 
had ever worked in that space with black legislators ever right mm-hmm. there had never been black people in the chamber as legislators as opposition members as ministers and so there's something that happens in a space over decades over time when voices have been intentionally excluded from it and suppressed and suppressed exactly or spoken on behalf of in ways that are not uh, representative accurate in ways that are harmful racist oppressive there's um an energy and and a, a texture to that space that you know is not that is not conducive to people like myself you know strolling in there and being comfortable or being fully recognized in that space by certain people who quite frankly and i'm speaking specifically about um, members opposite members in gov- on the government side of the house mm-hmm. who have never had to debate issues um, never had to discuss legislation with people or debate against people who have to live with the disproportionate consequences and impacts of those choices in those legislations and bills, et cetera, those laws. And so it, it can be a very challenging space. It can be a very difficult space, but it's important that we're there speaking our experiences and amplifying the voices of communities that are underrepresented and who have been suppressed in silence in that building. And it's important that, you know, we are challenging what people have decided and practiced as the status quo in there. And so every single day when I go to the legislature, when I go to work, I show up knowing that I have an incredible responsibility to not allow for the voices in my communities and the voices of the communities who have not been represented um, equitably there to to go unnoticed. They need to be heard, they need to be loud, and they need to be consistently, consistently taking up space because for literally well over 100 years, right? We're talking about 150 years of Manitoba. Mm -hmm. Those people, those voices, those communities have not been in that space representing themselves. And like, it's not that they don't exist. That's the important part that people forget that when you look at these legislators and you look at these places is that when it's only been one type of demographic, you think that's the only demographic that exists in that community. And that is far from the truth. You look at a place like Winnipeg, you look at a place like Manitoba, where there's so many different um, cultures, there's Asian, there's indigenous, there's black, but there's only been up till 2019 been represented by majority white people. Like there's not been a black person until you came in. So that's, it's very important that we continue to take up space because we have the things that we need to be dealt with in our community to be set in the legislature. And if we're not there to say it, they're not going to say it for us, sadly. Absolutely. Yeah, well, you're you're 100% correct. And as much as people may be well-intentioned, you know, as much as people may have good relationships with communities that aren't represented in the legislature, it doesn't mean that you are the best representative to speak on behalf of those communities. It doesn't yep. mean, right, it doesn't mean if you lack a lived experience, if you lack uh, a fundamental appreciation for the impacts of that decision making that you're just not going to go into that space with the energy and the passion and the 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 burning desire to see change in the same way you're not going to and 
you know, I, I, I represent 22,000, almost 22,000 people. No, there's no way that I, we all have the same shared lived experiences, not possible, mm-hmm. you know, but that's why it's so important for the legislature to look like Manitoba, who works in that building, who works in that chamber, you know, should look like the province that we represent and serve to give people of all backgrounds the best chance at having their needs addressed in that place. And so, you know, it's not just about people like me being in that building. It is absolutely about having representation so that all of us, all of us have our voices heard and we're moving in a direction of true equity when when we look at governance. So important. And then as we look at governance and we look at politics, specifically provincial politics, how do you personally describe or how is the culture in provincial politics? From your experience, yeah, I, the the culture in provincial politics is changing. You know, 2015, the first Indigenous MLA was elected, and you know, it it's fascinating to me. Sorry, first Indigenous woman. I should be specific. First Indigenous woman MLA was elected in in our caucus, Amanda Laughlin, and then since then, there's been um, several other Indigenous MLAs, um, Indigenous women elected to the legislature: Nahani Fontaine, Bernadette Smith. Provincial politics is changing. The landscape is changing in a good way in terms of increased representation and people bringing issues to the forefront that, again, haven't taken up space historically. There's also an incredible tension right now politically. There's a polarization that is happening in politics that has happened in politics that is concerning. Um, There's a way in which people think that they can treat politicians, engage in politics that is really, really toxic and violent to be blunt, you know, like there's a rise in, in threats that people are receiving, those kinds of things. Um, but I, I do also with sort of the rise in some of these negative things, I look at the, the increase in the positive and recognize that the more we here in Manitoba, the more we al- allow space for important narratives and stories to be shared and told, And the more that we recognize that most people wake up every single day wanting to go out and have a good day, Mm -hmm. you know, most people get up and they don't think I'm going to go out and I'm going to do harm, (laughs) you know, they want to choose peace, not violence. Yeah, exactly. And so we have to be facilitators of that politically. We have to, we have to give people the tools, the language, the resource to have the best outcomes and to contribute to their communities in a good way. I believe that that's what most people want. And it's important for us to, to make sure that those who would detract and take away from that don't, don't, give, don't have permission to take up so much space because the majority of people are, are choosing peace, not violence when they get up <laughs> in certain days, right? So, I mean, sometimes you choose violence, but... <laughs> You know, it's, I know it's a whole like cultural meme right now, Yes, uh, but I think that we have to be proponents of people having what they need in order to, you know, get from point A to point B in a good way, in a positive way, in a community focused way. And once you provide that to people, once you center the dialogue around that, you know, most people are on board. Mm-hmm, for sure. Choose peace, guys, not violence. Choose peace, not violence. <laughs> and- 
if I'm not mistaken, you just got the nomination again to run again for MLA as Union Station in the upcoming provincial election, which is, I believe, next year, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Mm -hmm. That's right. So as you prep up for another election cycle, what are you most excited for? What are you nervous about? What are you hoping to achieve prior to the election and after the election? I'm just really excited for all of the good work we get to continue doing up until the election in Union Station. I firmly believe I represent the best constituency in the province. We've got an incredibly diverse, dynamic and beautiful constituency. It is rich with, with so much. And, you know, I am thrilled for the opportunities that, uh, you know, we're going to be hoping to advance over the next year and a bit for people in the community working alongside those in our community um, to push this government to do better by the constituents that I represent and broadly, more broadly across Manitoba and just galvanizing people, mobilizing people to get the PCs out of government. You know, people are fed up with the, the current government that we have. Um, they don't prioritize Manitobans. They have made decisions very intentionally that have hurt Manitobans. And so I'm just really excited at the momentum and the energy that I'm seeing and hearing from folks to make a change, right? So it's about carrying that momentum forward, you know, making sure people are enthusiastic about their communities and about the opportunities that we have to work together mm -hmm. to get governments in place in 2023 that's going to put communities and people first. So I'm excited to do all that work. We've got a great team. Um, I love, like I said, my constituency and the folks within it, and I'm just thrilled at the opportunity to continue doing this work in the hopes of being reelected re and us continuing our journey to make Manitoba a better place for everybody. That's amazing. And that's amazing. And congratulations again, nomination and good luck as Thank you me. enter another election cycle, because I know election cycles can be draining, tiring, but at the end of the day, like you said, it's for the community and it's for the people at large. So that's what's important at the end of the day. Absolutely. And the next question I have is like, what is a secret that people do not see? Or what is a secret that you can share with us about the legislator or Manitoban provincial politics that, you know, you can share with us? A secret? Oh my goodness. I don't know. I feel like that building probably has a lot of secrets. I don't know if I've been there long enough to learn any of them really. Um, but, you know, I would say... One secret is maybe that as stressful as the job is, and as much as people see us not getting along on the outside, you know, there, there is a way in which we make an effort to try and form relationships with, you know, politicians across the way, mm -hmm. you know, and that's not everybody. Cause honestly, some of those conservative um, MLAs, no, <laughs> but, um, but you know, there's, you you want to form strong relationships, strong working relationships so that you can you can advocate for your community mm -hmm. so that you can bring their concerns forward and, and have enough of um, a rapport where, you know, their voices and their needs are heard and addressed. So, you know, there's definitely a way that we we learn to work together where we can. And um, that's really important. And I know that folks often don't see that they just see, you know, the the posts on Twitter and the criticisms that we have of the government. But, um, you know, there is an element where, you know, and unfortunately, I think because the, you know, the, the conservatives have had um, former leadership in Brian Pallister and current leadership that in Heather Stephenson 
where they're just so focused on their own sort of ideological agenda like you know, tunnel vision essentially tunnel vision just so focused on tunnel vision that they're not they're not willing to work with you know the opposition or you know other folks even the community in a way that really gets good decisions made so that's that's disappointing and that's hard but you know we do make efforts we do make efforts as the opposition to try to work with the government and work with those mlas and ministers and to try and have a good relationship wherever we can to get good things done for people. So, you know, I get a lot of criticism from some people on social media, on Twitter, especially where they just oh, the say, Twitter bots. Oh, the Twitter bots are, it's, it's surreal watching your Twitter following grow. And then you look at who's following you and it's like, they have no followers. It's some random name or number. Their profile picture is clearly fake. They just egg. Like, they literally don't change it and then you're they're having so much opinions under a simple post of yours and it's like and it's just not one person it's like literally tens of exactly. hundreds of people and just like it's not even like it's productive and you can actually gain a conversation it's just attack after attack after just attack. attack just attack and it's it's disheartening it's kind of like oh this is really what this is about this is part of politics um but you know those folks as well maybe they do no i don't i don't think those folks and other folks can necessarily see the efforts that are made to um you know again build those working relationships but at the end of the day we just have to focus on doing our jobs the best ways we can to, to help people and kind of let that other stuff roll off of have you ever like not attacked but like have you ever called out a mla from the government side and then kind of had to like you know talk to them afterwards kind of thing like has it been like attack in the legislature but then afterwards it's kind of like oh you know don't worry about that or how's like the rapport with how's an sure. example of the rapport like that that makes sense that's a good that's a really good question no I typically if I go after somebody in the legislature and question period and I ask tough questions or I you know I identify that someone's done something racist or inappropriate or whatever it is no I'm not going to back down from that I'm mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, coming from a place of truth and, and standing up for what is right. You know, there's been a couple of times, well, where actually, you know, a PC MLA has made, you know, pretty terrible comments, pretty terrible attempts at jokes, and then has tried to act like, oh, that's whatever, that's just how it is in the chamber. And I don't stand for that. I think that there's obviously in the in question period in the chamber, there's this culture um, within this this parliamentary system of heckling. And there's a, you know, like jeering and, and whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. But there's a line that should never be crossed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are MLAs, conservative MLAs who have crossed that line. You know, the premier, former premier Brian Pallister crossed that line on a regular, he didn't just cross it, he took a running jump across the line on regular uh, occasions, making racist remarks, making misogynistic remarks. And, you know, every single time he did so, his caucus would applaud him. You know, every sing single time he did so, they, they had his back and they were telling him that's correct. Right, that racist statement is okay. And there are members of the PC caucus who have made really terrible, inappropriate, racist, like I said, uh, comments, whether it's in their debate responses or speeches, 
Um, they're heckling in the chamber and I'll never stand for that. I'm, I'm not going to shake your hand afterwards and tell you that we're cool when you use those opportunities to espouse something that has no place in our society. Um, and that's not all of them, but mm-hmm. it's enough of them. And, you know, when their entire caucus supported a leader who we can all see plain as day uh, is racist you know, it got to a point here in Manitoba where nobody could deny it. The man is, you know, making the most, just the most offensive remarks uh, in front of the media and not a single member of his caucus condemned him. Not a single member of his caucus came out and said what the premier said today was wrong. There's a deeper problem there, right? And that, uh, and that sometimes you see that deeper problem expressed in moments and I don't, I don't stand for that. And thankfully, I'm part of a team and a caucus uh, that doesn't stand for that either. It's very, very important to ask that question, too, because like when people see the media, they see, you know, NDP, liberal and PC. And sometimes it's always like the, the, you, you wouldn't think that they would be friends afterwards or cordial. I want, everything you said is so true. Like, how am I supposed to shake hands with you when you've basically disrespected my community and the people that I represent? Like, I can't support that. And continue to speak your truth and continue to stand your ground. I think it's very important that we see politicians do that because it's very easy to mistake that and feed into the culture that is parliamentary Mm -hmm. politics. Absolutely. And, you know, it's important for people to also, you know, because they do see that, right? They Mm -hmm. do see the former premier making these horrible statements in the media in question period, and they see his entire caucus uh, not condemning it and and supporting him wholeheartedly, um, you know. And again, you know, there are there's maybe a couple of MLS, certain MLAs rather who have made you know inappropriate remarks here or there, and, and we call them out for it. I call them out for it. Um, but you know, people look at what happens and they also apply how we respond and how we engage to their own lives. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the person in their workplace whose boss or whose coworker makes those comments. And that person who might feel alone in that moment and like they they can't speak up. I'm thinking about kids in school who maybe are dealing with bullying or dealing with circumstances, uh, whether it's a peer or a teacher or someone in the community who's making offensive, hurtful remarks that need to be condemned and addressed appropriately. That's who I think about. I think about my community members and it's important for them to be able to look at us as legislators in the most, these privileged positions in government and to see that even the pre, even the premier, you know, the person who's responsible for delivering um, leadership across our province for our province, that person's going to get called out for offensive remarks. It has no place anywhere in Manitoba. And, you know, if Uzoma can stand up and call that out on social media or in the chamber or in the news or whatever it is, if Nahani Fontaine can do that, if Bernadette Smith can do that, if Lisa Naylor can do that, then I can do that at my school. I can do that in my workplace. So that's who I think about. I think about those scenarios and how we must set the example mm-hmm. for not accepting that kind of vitriol and uh, intolerance from anybody, even the premier. Word. 
clap, 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 clap. <laughs> no, it's true. And then again, giving the confidence to people to be like, if an MLA in the highest place in provincial politics can call out that behavior, then I have the confidence to do so in a respectful manner. So it's very important. And then the last question regarding our little political area is, how do you remain hopeful in politics when sometimes it can be so hard to do so? How do you remain hopeful when sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any hope? I draw hope from the actions of everyday people. I see Manitoba, I've lived here my whole life and I know Manitoba. I see the challenges, I see what we're facing that's hard, but I also see all of the good. I see people coming together to make sure that their neighbors are okay. I see people coming together to stand up against injustice. I saw 20,000 people come together two summers ago to rally around Justice for Black Lives, mm-hmm. Winnipeg and uh, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and injustice that Black people face at the hands of the state and police. I, I draw hope from those moments and from people. And, you know, I, I am the product of hope. I am where I am today in my career, in my life as a human being, as somebody who is unapologetically, you know, who they are, wherever I go, because of hope. And because people throughout my life lifted me up and affirmed who I was and didn't let me quit on myself and on opportunities when I was scared or nervous or unsure or doubtful. And so, you know, I feel a responsibility to be hopeful and to carry that forward. There's a lot of people who came before us who worked very hard to make our lives just a little bit easier and a little bit better. And so I think about all of those things. I think about all of those people and I find the good in in everyday actions. And that's what I focus on because all of those things add up. And again, most people wake up every day and they, and they choose good and they want to walk out in the world and they want to make um, their workplace, their community, their, the lives of their children, the lives of the children in their communities better. And that's what I choose to focus on. They choose peace, not violence. Mm-hmm. Key, key, key. As we end the segment, we go into Black History Month segments the first question i have is describe the black experience in one word dope hey okay i like that <laughs> i like that I like that i had someone else question and they said beautiful so i like first question dope it's so true so dope yeah and then second question i have for you is growing up how was your experience growing up as a black person in manitoba did you feel like you had the space to be your authentic self as well mm-hmm. My Black experience growing up in Manitoba um, was amazing, was so dynamic, like so diverse, right? Growing up in a community just outside the perimeter of the city, um, kind of feeling like you're growing up in a, in a small town, mm-hmm. in a small city, but also growing up very much rooted in my identity and our community as a Nigerian, as an Igbo. And so having these sort of these different worlds existing at the same time um, was a beautiful upbringing and not without its challenges, but it was beautiful and rewarding. And, um, you know, I felt and always have felt uh, very proud 
of who I am as a Nigerian, very proud that my parents worked hard um, to be able to raise us in a place where they felt we would have good opportunities mm -hmm. and raised us with an awareness that, you know, there are, there are first peoples here. That was something that was really important that our parents taught us that indigenous peoples are the first peoples and to respect and understand and appreciate that and recognize their struggle as a struggle that we must support and their efforts um, are efforts that we must support. So, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, if you talk to other, when I talk to other first generation Nigerians who grew up here, pretty unremarkable upbringing. Mm -hmm. You know, we share similar stories, experiences, yep. we, right? Tell the same jokes about what happened in our households. Um, I always, I love doing that with my friends. It's so funny yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing the, you know, it's just amazing how much you you realize was the same um, as, you know, other first-gen Nigerian or African kids growing up. But certainly, you know, I feel fortunate to have been raised in the prairies. It's a very unique experience. We deal with conditions that other folks don't, like the extreme ends of the weather. <laughs> and, um, but we get beautiful prairie sunsets. And you know, there's a, a pace here that I really like, and I've loved my whole life. So growing up here was a beautiful experience. I'm grateful for it. And it's a big part of the reason why I want to be a contributor to other people having access to what they need to thrive and to enjoy their journeys, to journey safely and in affirmation uh, when they grew up here in Manitoba. Yes, I love that. Next question I have for you is, when you won the election in 2019, you weren't only the first Black MLA in the Manitoba Chamber, but you were also the first Black queer MLA in the Manitoba Chamber. So how did that feel like to win the election? And how does that, what does that mean for you in terms of your identity and others that share your identity in and out of Manitoba? Well, when I was elected, there were there are three of us elected that night. So Jamie Moses, the MLA for St. Patel, who's an NDP MLA, and Audrey Gordon, who's a conservative MLA and now minister um, on the, yeah, the PC side of the house. And we're all, we couldn't be more different, <laughs> all three of us, which I think is important because, you know, we're not a monolith. Black people are not all the same. We are very, very different. There's a ton of diversity within our communities. And, you know, me being elected, being queer, being an activist, being non-binary, I bring a very different lived experience to the, to, to the legislature than my um, uh, counterparts who are Black and who are also elected. Yeah, so being, being elected with the identities that I have doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to go into that building and be talking about being queer and non-binary mm -hmm. and all those things. For me, it does <laughs> because I know that those perspectives haven't been um, centered or thought of necessarily in policymaking in the same way. A good example would be when you get elected, they send you a letter and that letter, um, they send you a letter asking what your salutations are. So how do you want to be addressed on correspondence, mm -hmm. et cetera. And the only options were Mr., Ms., Miss, and Mrs. And I sent it back saying, none of these apply to me. Is it all right if I'm simply referred to as MLA Asaguera? What, like that's a totally neutral mm -hmm. option. 
And they said, we'll look into it because they had never had that issue before, right? It had never been raised before. And so now it's been established in the legislature that any, any, any elected official can go by MLA and then their uh, surname. Mm -hmm. That's a necessary change. And that's a change that happens when you don't leave who you are um, outside of that building, right? I'm going to go into that building being myself and prioritizing um, respecting my own identity, recognizing that there's going to be lots of other people in that building who are also non-binary. It's just, it's just what's going to happen. There probably already have been people in that building who are non-binary. And you should be able to be a legislator and be addressed the way that affirms who you are. And so, um, you know, I take very seriously, you know, who I am in terms of what I can bring to that space to um, make changes that make it a safer place to be for people of all sorts of identities and experiences. That may sound so small for other people, but you being able to say, I would like to be referred to as MLA is very important. And some people would, it's just a minor thing, but your being in the legislative of Manitoba allows for that type of change to happen. And for other people to who come after you to feel comfortable in who they are and in their identity. So represent this is an example of representation matters. Absolutely. And yeah. as we start finishing up this wonderful episode, one of the last questions I'll ask you is, as we celebrate Black History Month and as we look at and celebrate all the beautiful people that have come before us, that are with us and they'll come after us, what do you think is a key thing that people should remember as we celebrate Black History Month for Black Canadians specifically? Ooh, um, that Black history here is long hundreds of years old and that when we celebrate black history it is so important for us to be intentional about learning black history mm -hmm. but also unlearning what we have been taught that is erroneous that is false about black people it's so important for us to use this time to be intentional about reclaiming space as Black people, for non-Black people to step back, do their learning, do their unlearning, but also to prioritize the voices of Black people and to recognize that Black history is actually not just one month. Black history mm -hmm. is every single day of the year. It's an opportunity within the month to recommit to recognizing that and to, to recommit to using every single opportunity that we have in our capacity to support Black people um, here in living lives that are wholly respected, lifted up, celebrated, and, you know, quite frankly, equitable yes. in all of our systems, because we're still not there yet. We're not. So, you know, we need to use this opportunity to engage people in a way that moves us properly in the direction of true equity. Keyword equity. I think people forget that when we are on this fight is that we are looking to get equitable things, whether that be equitable healthcare, whether it be equitable education for Black people to make sure they feel seen and welcome because this space is also their space as well. 100%. Absolutely. As I'm with this episode, 
and having you on has been amazing. I am so, so thankful that you were able to join me. And as we end this episode, I have one last question to ask and is what is one thing that is not talked about in mainstream media regarding Black people and Black Canadians that you believe deserves more attention? Just Black people being regular. <laughs> you know, like Black people just living life. our day-to-day life and just being great because that's what we do on a day-to-day basis. We just regular lives, great lives. And I think that's part of the reason why, and I'm going to give Issa Rae a shout out, her show Insecure, which just wrapped its final season. Yes. Right? It was so highly successful because it was a story and a narrative that we don't get to see, which is just young Black people living their lives. So true. So, right? so true. Told by us, for us, and... No compromise. No compromise adhering to other ideals. It's just us living life. And to some, it seems so strange, but as a Black person with your identity you have to think about so many things and then if you're a black mm-hmm. queer you also have to think of your uh, your identity if you're a black woman you have to think of your identity and then if you're black and disabled like we don't get a chance just to breathe and live life so i 100 percent think that should just be more normalized just wow. us black people being regular yes <laughs> absolutely thank you again so much for joining me and as we end this episode is there any last words that you have to tell the people No, I I appreciate the time being here. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate your platform. And I wish you all the best. Keep focused on your journey. We need voices and spaces like yours. And I look forward to hearing and seeing more of you and what you're doing. And that is this week's episode, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. And make sure to check out the description box for all things mentioned in this episode. Also, make sure to follow us at the PTT Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. If you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, make sure to stay engaged in all things politics and social justice. My name is Anime. This is the Political Distat Podcast. Until next time, bye. Thank you.